Welcome to SECC. We pray that you are blessed today as you listen. Morning, everybody. Welcome to church. If you're watching at home, welcome to church as well. It's good to have you with us uh, in the comfort of your own home. Hope you're comfortable. Hope you're dressed, uh, as in not in your pajamas. Um, but it's good to be together. We're going to worship God um, this morning. And if you're visiting us, uh, it's lovely to have you with us as well. If it's your first time, I'll give you a really warm welcome. Um, so, let's start with a little story. There was a chaplain, a soldier, shall I say, who uh, was in a particular war. I forget which one. Um, well, the story that I looked at didn't have it. But he was there, and, and in this particular war, he happened to lose his arm. So he happened to uh, be shot, and his arm fell off, presumably. Anyway, and he was in the hospital, um, just recovering, and, and the local chaplain of that hospital felt it was his duty to go around and seal the various soldiers and encourage them. And so he went up to this soldier, and he said to him, you, son, because he was the older, you lost your arm to a great cause, in a great cause. No, said the soldier with a smile. I didn't lose my arm. I gave it. I thought it was lovely. I like that. Um, attitude is everything in life, isn't it? Attitude is everything. I remember hearing a joke, uh, again, of two young boys uh, from a, a particular family, and one was a, a perpetual pessimist, never liked anything, never, nothing was ever good enough, you know those people, they're never happy, sadly. And then one was an eternal optimist, everything was awesome. They can be just as irritating at times, I guess. Anyway, so they decided to test um, the theory out on whether their children would respond if they treated them differently. And so to the pessimist, they gave them, that particular boy, a whole ton of really expensive gifts. Everything he ever wanted, they gave, they wrapped up, and they watched him unwrap them. And to the son, who was an optimist, they gave a bale of hay, as you do. And so the, the pessimistic son opened all of his gifts, and sure enough, they moaned about every single one. Well, that's rubbish. That's too small. I don't want that. Mm. You know how it goes. The son, who was the optimist, opened his bale of hay and erupted with joy. He couldn't believe it. He was so excited. He thanked his mum and dad. And then he got his shoes and his coat on and his scarf and his hat. It was cold. And he began to go outside. And they said, what on earth are you doing? He said, I can't believe you bought me a horse for Christmas. <laughs> Attitude is everything, isn't it? How you approach a situation in life is more determining, uh, more, more of a factor than the situation itself often. We're told in Philippians chapter 2 that we should have an attitude like Jesus Christ. This is what Paul writes to the church at Philippi. This is the mindset, the attitude we should have the same as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says your attitude is to be like that of Jesus Christ. Even though he was God as a person, he went obediently, gave it all up, gave his life so that we could live. The world we live in is very different to the world we talk about in church, the Christian life. The world we live in often is trying to force us into a mold 24-7, uh, no, yeah, seven days a week, 365, whatever it is. How many days of the year are there? Sorry. Um, all the time. The world is constantly trying to force us into a particular mold. Live this way. Have that opinion. Stand there. Look like that. Look, don't look like that. Have this view. Don't have this view. Have this priority. And Jesus calls his followers 
to live very, very differently to the way the world calls us to live. He calls us to stand up for justice, to stand out for holiness, to live for his coming kingdom and its principles and not a world that is passing away. The Bible says this world is passing away, that it has an end date, that one day it will all go and God will make everything new. God's kingdom is coming and it is perfect. And Jesus calls his followers not to live in this world according to all of its principles and fit in, but to live for the one that's coming that will be eternal and fit in over there. We're doing a new series of talks, as I said last week, titled Things Jesus Said, which is harder to put together than you might realize, because Jesus said a lot, but it's almost like there's too many things. How do you narrow it down to eight weeks before Easter? But never mind, never mind, we have done. Um, Because we want to hear the words of Jesus, because there are many words, as we said last week, spoken at us, over us, spoken by us, over ourselves. And we want to hear the word of Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son. We said last week from John 1 that Jesus is God as a man. Therefore, when he speaks, he's not just some nice guy who's got some good philosophy. When he spoke, he was speaking God's words into our broken lives. So we should listen. So we're going to look at a a group of teachings called the Beatitudes. Uh, They're just titled the Beatitudes in your Bible uh, by someone else. They're not actually called the Beatitudes. But um, Matthew chapter 5, if you've got a Bible open in front of you, you can just flick over. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. You're about three quarters of the way through the Bible, but don't worry, it should appear uh, behind me on the screen. The Beatitudes are a set of statements that Jesus said at the beginning of a a very long talk, which he probably delivered uh, lots of times in lots of places. Uh, This particular talk is called the Sermon on the Mount, given because he did it on the side of a hill. Um, But on this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to speak to his followers about what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be one of his followers. The kind of ethics and that kind of thing, the ethics and the morals and the attitudes that are fitting for God and his kingdom, fit for a king, if you like, that we should begin to live out in this world. The kingdom is coming, Jesus is saying, and all that he says in these three chapters in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 are the DNA of that kingdom. And Jesus calls us to live out radical lives now into a world that is often at war with itself. And these attitudes, uh, the beginning of chapter 5, the beginning of this long talk, the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes, all start with blessed are. There's um, a couple of them. And they all really talk about the kind of attitude that Jesus wants us to have. And they're powerful as well. These attitudes are powerful. These characteristics are world-changing. If you were to live out all of these things in Matthew chapter 5 all the way down to verse 10, you would discover a life that was so transformative, that transformed those lives of people around you, situations you found yourself in. This thing with the Ukraine, awful as it is, would not be happening if Vladimir Putin was following the Beatitudes of Christ in Matthew chapter 5. And that's why we preach the good news of Jesus, because Christ can stop wars. Let me read them all to you. So from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, down to, I'll go to verse 12. uh, But we're only going to focus on one this morning. So, So now Jesus, when he saw the crowds, went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we're going to look just at um, verse 3, the first one. So that first one that says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And like I say, this is the beginning of Jesus' much longer talk about the kingdom of God and the ethics and the morals fit for a king. And the Beatitudes, what I've just said, really sum up everything he's about to say. Um, in terms of the audience, who's Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to a crowd of people. Verse 1 speaks of Jesus seeing the crowd and going up on a mountainside. And then he calls his disciples, they come to him, and he teaches his disciples with the crowd in earshot. You see, the crowd are curious about Jesus. If you were to go back to Matthew 4, verse 25, they've seen Jesus do all sorts of miraculous things. They're curious, they want to know more. And so they kind of follow him around a bit. So you've got the crowd, but then you've got the disciples. These are men and women, um, but men are the focus in this particular part who have heard the the call to repent, turn from their sin and follow Jesus as their king and their savior. They're more than curious. They're actual followers of Jesus Christ. And so they listen to him and they actively try to live out the life he calls them to live. But it's almost as if he's teaching his disciples, but the crowd are overhearing this teaching. And I think there's something here because I think Jesus teaches his people, but he's got one eye on the curious crowd. And maybe this morning, you're curious. Maybe you hear what we say on a Sunday morning, you've listened to watch stuff on Netflix or listened to podcasts or whatever it might be, however you get your information. Um, and maybe you're curious. You find yourself thinking, is there more to this? Is there a God? Is there a Jew? Is this Jesus? They go on about every Sunday. Well, let me tell you, you may be curious, but he loves you to death and he wants you. He wants you to be one of his true followers to know the life and the forgiveness that only he can bring, the new life that only he can give through his death and resurrection. I find it fascinating that he sometimes talks to his people, but actually he's got one eye on those who have not yet decided to follow him, and we should as well. I've been really taken by the story of the lost sheep. Jesus tells a story in uh, um, Matthew, I think it is, where he talks of a guy that has a hundred sheep. It's just a story. He has a hundred sheep, one wanders off, and Jesus says, what does he do? He leaves the 99 alone, unattended, and he goes searching for that one lost sheep. And I've really been on my heart the last few weeks. I don't know why. It's probably because as we pray over all those names before the service, it occurs to me that every single one of us was that one lost sheep. And then Christ spoke to us, and we responded. We heard that call. We turned, and we followed him home. This morning, if you feel like you are lost and alone, Jesus is looking for you. I promise you that. So the word Beatitudes uh, that's been used as a title um, is just a a Latin word that just means um, happy or blessed. And that's really what these are. These are blessings. How to be happy. Aren't we all desperate to be happy as human beings? Don't we just want to be joyous all the time? And actually, when you go through these, you realize how weird it is. What an odd way to be happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. Does make any sense? Why would having a, a wrecked spirit, that must be what it means, surely. How can having a broken spirit make you happy? When you look at what Jesus is about to say, you're going to think to yourself, this is upside down, isn't it? This is back to front thinking. How can these things make you happy? How can mourning make you happy? How can being hungry for what's good make you happy? 
Surely having more of something makes you happy. Being comfortable should make you happy. But all of these things are hard. How can striving to make peace be joyous? Leave me alone. I sit at home, thanks very much. How can mourning for things make you happy? It makes you cry. But there's a real joy from those things. That makes you happy. Upside down thinking, surely. Our world will say they're stupid. These things are stupid. I'm an idiot to follow these things. They don't make any sense. But yet, the more you listen to Jesus Christ, the more you begin to live out his life in yours, the more you realize something profound. That it's not Jesus' teaching that's upside down. But the world that we live in is in fact upside down. And what he teaches is the right side up. That's why Jesus is so transformative and so radical. Who would ever say, love your enemies? Who would ever say, turn the other cheek when someone hits you? Only a fool. Unless the foolishness of the world is in fact wisdom in God's world. Upside down thinking is in fact the right way up. So we're going to look at verse 3 just briefly this morning. So we're going to come back a bit later on and look at it together. But blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What is verse 3? Verse 3 is a couple of things. The first thing verse 3 is, is an attitude. An attitude. You all know, you haven't got to listen to me now. You can just read them. Um, but it's an attitude. What is poverty of spirit? We immediately go to the negative with anything like that, don't we? We say it must be self-loathing. It must be a lack of self-esteem or self-hatred. It's not that at all. Poverty of spirit isn't deficiency or self-hatred or any of those things. Poverty of spirit is simply understanding our limitations as broken, finite, mortal human beings. And then our utter need of this limitless, eternal loving God. The person who is poor of spirit doesn't think less of themselves, but understands themselves correctly. I'm not awesome, actually. I'm a bit of a mess. But God is awesome, and I need to trust him. Poverty of spirit is actually honesty about yourself. There's a phrase in Silicon Valley that's got lots of people into trouble, and it goes like this, fake it until you make it. Promise the earth, I can do it. Be brilliant. Trust me. I can deliver that product on time. I can save you this amount of money. Everything will be awesome. Style it out. Promise the world and hope you can deliver. And if you can't, hey-ho, never mind. That's not poverty of spirit. See, the attitude that God prizes in his coming kingdom isn't self-sufficiency, isn't pride or arrogance, but actually humility. Humility is almost despised these days. It's not thinking that you're God's gift to this world, but being willing to give up the gifts of this world for all that God has. I met a woman years and years and years ago, and I won't say where because I keep talking about this country too often. Um, a woman called Valerie Taylor, and she ran a, a little organization called the Center for the Rehabilitation of the Paralyzed. And, uh, and we were being, had a little tour around with a friend of ours. She was showing us this a fantastic facility she'd basically done all on her own. She was in charge, this woman called Valerie. And we passed her, actually, just by chance in the courtyard or in the garden, wherever it was. And uh, just so I said, all right, hello. She said, hello. That was it. Walked off. Very polite conversation. And I said to this friend of ours, I said, oh, she seems nice. Who's she? She said, well, that's Valerie. She's in charge. I said, oh, she seems so lovely, so gentle and kind. She went, well, she is all those things. But man, that woman's a steam drain. <laughs> and I thought to myself, how wonderful is that? Everything about her embodied humility. 
There was nothing that suggested that that woman had an ounce of arrogance in her whatsoever. Fully reliant on God is what she was. And God used her to build this wonderful thing in a country where people uh, that needed physical therapy and that kind of thing weren't getting any rudimentary uh, health system. She was being used by God mightily. There was a humility, a poverty of spirit. And then God used her in a profound way. And that actual, that one small conversation had a deep impact on me. So verse 3 is an attitude. Are you arrogant this morning? Are you still trying to be the one that can fix all of your problems? Are you still trying to be the one that looks away? Are you still faking it, trying to make it? Maybe it's time to say, God, I'm rubbish and I'm a bit of a mess. I need your help. The second thing, verse 3, is, is a reality. It starts with the word blessed. That word blessed is much deeper than temporary, circumstantial joy that often the things of this world offers. We think if I get to the top of the mountain, I'll be really, really happy. Or if I get this thing or get that thing or have that experience, and then we get there and we do it, and it's a bit rubbish and it's a bit of a letdown. But the blessings, the happiness Jesus is speaking of here is much deeper than that temporary feelings of joy the world often offers. It's actually more like a state of secure well-being that can only come through a relationship with God. We think if I get and if I do and if I think and if I have, then I'll be happy. But really the lesson from Jesus is actually once you know God and he becomes your king and your savior, then you're in that stable sense of well-being. And I'm a child of God. And therefore, I can have that confidence. It's a reality. I'm blessed because of who I know, not who I am. It's often when we suffer as human beings, as Christians, I should say, that our faith really comes alive. Why? Not because God is only there when things are rough. Quite the opposite. That's misunderstanding. God's always there. But often we ignore him when we're comfortable. But when we're struggling, when we're at our wit's end, it's then that we understand God's limitless love and care. And it's a great hope for the Christian to know that actually when I'm at my limit, God is limitless. And I can trust in him with all my tomorrows. And finally, verse 3 is a hope. The Beatitudes seem upside down compared to what the world offers us. You see, poverty of spirit is simply an understanding of your need of God. When I, when I was 11 years old, I became a Christian. I was asked if I wanted to accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. In that moment, although I didn't fully understand what I did, I, I recognized my sin and my brokenness. In the years that followed, I had moments where I would say to God, Lord, I'm a mess. I'm a complete, terrible Christian. I keep sinning. Every time I say I won't do it again, I'm just lying to you because I can't help it. And as I say, sorry, you know I'm already planning the next time I'm going to do it. Lord, I'm a broken man. I'm a mess and I'm a disaster. And I wouldn't blame you if you kicked me out of your kingdom. And then in those moments... It's like the hope of Christ washes over me. As if God's saying, that'd be ridiculous. I still love you. I'll always love you. Because in that moment, when I recognize my wretchedness, I understand God's absolute, unconditional love. In a sense, that's what happens when you become a Christian. You get to that point where you think, this God is so holy. That he's in charge of all our eternities. Why should he do anything for me? Lord, I'm in trouble because all my good isn't good enough. So, Lord, forgive me for my sin. I accept Christ as my Savior. And then God gives you his kingdom. What does it say? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In that moment of asking Jesus into your life, of utter, Lord, I'm ruined without you, God says, now you're saved. Here is my kingdom for you. 
It's incredible. I read a quote this week that said, the kingdom of God is for those who confess spiritual bankruptcy. The kingdom of God is for those who confess spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus would often meet rich people. I'm not having a pop if you've got money, by the way. But would often meet rich people in his travels. And they will be the hardest people to come into God's kingdom. Why? Not because they're any different to the rest of us. Because there are a lot more reasons to feel self-confident. But when we say, Lord, I need you, I've got nothing else. Then he gives us his kingdom. Mark chapter 8, verse 36. Jesus says this. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? yet forfeit their soul. Poverty of spirit is not poverty at all. It's upside down poverty because poverty in God's kingdom is richness. Poverty in this world, I should say, is richness in God's kingdom. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, God says, Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit who tremble at my word. Maybe this morning you feel exhausted. Maybe you feel broken. Maybe you feel lost. Maybe you feel bad. Whilst it's not an easy place to be, and it certainly isn't fun, but this is a moment, actually, when you can discover in your brokenness a God who will knit you back together, a God who loves you. You can discover a strength and a confidence that's not your own, but that is his. In that desert road you're on, God can give you thirst, can quench your thirst with hope. He can heal you, he can bless you, he can lift you up. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. This morning, maybe you feel sick and broken. Christ wants to give you the kingdom and heal you. Let's just pray. Maybe just in this moment, just think of what's been said. Think of how you're feeling. Are you feeling like a fraud? Are you feeling like someone who is just trying to style it out, put a brave face on it? Are you someone that's still convincing yourself that you can find all the solutions, you don't need any help? Maybe now's a moment just to say to God in prayer, Lord, I'm going to put all that rubbish down. Lord, I am broken. I need you. If you're a Christian, uh, it's time to be honest all the time. Be honest with your God, he knows anyway. Say, Lord, I'm broken and I need you. Lord, I'm poor. Help. And know that even now, that hope is already there. And if you're not a Christian, maybe this is just a moment to say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me. I believe you died and rose again. I want to be one of your followers. Maybe just pray that prayer. Father God, we just pray for our world. Lord, a world that is upside down. And Lord, there's no other word for it. Lord, all the good things that happen, we celebrate, of course. But we see, Lord, upside down thinking all the time. Father God, not just in wars, but in our society. The way we treat each other. The things we get excited about and the things that we ignore. Father God, may your church, may your people, Lord, show right side up thinking. Lord, may you reach out for the lost sheep and bring them home, we pray. Lord, in this room, those who feel alone and lost... May they know, Lord, that you've been looking for them for such a long time. And they just need to hear your voice and turn around and be saved. Lord, we commit all this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.